Hello, everyone. Welcome back for a brand new episode of Collider Connected. I am beyond thrilled to be doing a South by Southwest edition of the show right now, and especially because it means I get to talk to Lucy Lawless for The Spine of Night of all movies. Lucy, I'm freaking out about that movie. Are you really? (laughs) It's so good. It's so bloody. I just like I can't remember the last time I've seen something like that. Yeah, pretty crazy. Um psychedelic vision for from Phil Gillette and, and the team but I, I think it started with him right and uh, and ended with him and it's a real labor of love but um, I was drawn to it immediately because in my childhood there was this crazy cartoon called Clutch Chicago which was very two-dimensional and then they would have real mouths sort of rotoscoped in doing the talking and um, I thought it was really boring but quite mesmerizing and um, anyway, when I saw it, I was like, oh, my God, this is like the 70s all over again. I, you know, like somebody smoked a big old doobie when they came up with that or something psychedelic about it, you know, pretty nutty stuff. And I just thought, yeah, I want to be part of this. I've never seen that show you brought up. And I don't know if I'm picturing the right thing, but have you ever gone on, I guess, uh, like TikTok and Snapchat and seen those filters where you can turn yourself into a potato and stuff and all you see is your real oh, lip moving with, a, with an animated potato? <laughs> I confess I've never been on TikTok. Um, It's a journey. All right. So I warned you, we are going back to the very beginning. And by the very beginning, I mean, step one. Do you remember the very first thing that made you say, I want to be an actor, whether it was a movie you loved, a personal experience, seeing an idol do it, something along those lines? Um, I remember, I, I don't know how old I was, quite young six, seven, eight, something, My sitting in the TV room with my brothers, older brothers, and a girl came on the TV doing an ad with a Kiwi accent. And they were like, she gets paid heaps for doing that. And I went, oh, my God, that's a job? Like, I'm seven. I could do that. You know, that's when I realized, oh, my goodness, that's an option for a girl with an accent like me. Um, so people need to see themselves represented on, on TV for all sorts of reasons. But, uh, and that's why um, we're seeing what we have to do with diversity and, and people need to see themselves. Absolutely. So when you get that idea in your head and you picture yourself at the very beginning, making it, so to speak, what exactly did you picture at that point? Was it making it on Broadway, doing comedy, being an action star, maybe? Being interviewed by some, at that time, um, British interviewers, um, I thought that would be part of it. Um, (laughs) They're all dead and gone now. So you see yourself at the Oscars and you see, and I remember one time B. Goldberg said in her speech, if for all the kids out there who want to be up here someday, you better believe it, kid. And that was like a turning point for me. Like, yeah, you got to believe it. You got to back yourself. And um, so she unwittingly was very instrumental in in my uh, career. I love hearing that. So you commit to, you know, uh, pursuing the dream. What would you say was the first, I guess, kind of high value step that you tore, that you took towards making that dream a reality, something that made you think it's not just a pipe dream. It's something that I'm actually doing right now. Well, I ran off to Vancouver to study acting and that was really good. You know, taking all kinds of training, whether it's voice or whatever, you can do that in your hometown. You can find somebody to, to creatively spark off, uh, people who help you with technique and all that stuff. I think that's the first thing that everybody should be doing. If you have a creative bone in your body, nourish it. 
you know, feed it. And um, so that would be the first thing. And then having the balls to get up and go to Canada, um, even though I was, uh, I actually was a teenager when I got pregnant and thereafter married. So that a lot of people thought, oh, well, there goes Lucy's big dreams. And But I didn't see it that way. I chose to be oblivious to all those kind of naysayers and just press on do and do what you dream. And in those days, it was really hard. Like to get yourself to drama school was a big to do. You had to go to the consulate and get a phone book for England or Canada or whatever and look up the names. And then you had to write to them. That would take two weeks for the letter to get there. And maybe they'd respond that take two weeks to get back. So, you know, it was a very long process. You couldn't just access info and contacts on um, online. So you had to be really committed and um, keep busy in the times when you didn't have work or um, when there was no validation that word didn't even exist in those days. That was something to do with your parking ticket. But um, you just had to, yeah, you have to feed your creativity when nobody else is. Were you focusing on anything specific in drama school, like a, a particular type of performance, theater? Oh, Shakespeare, Shakespeare, Hedda Gabler, you know, the, um, the classics that I never foresaw where the hell my career would go. I, I was terrible at sports. I have zero interest in fantasy and barely even sci-fi. Um, so none of all of this is a, complete shock to me even looking back I go how did that happen that was crazy and then when you get an on-screen gig I know the first one was the sketch comedy show so jumping into that first is there anything about that being your first on-screen experience that you think benefited you versus having a more traditional show being the first thing on your resume oh yeah because comedy um you have to fly by the seat of your pants you know you so and it was just a bunch of kids having fun I didn't so I was freer, you know, the minute you care too much, you clam up in comedy and then you just can't do it. It doesn't work. So um, I always enjoyed the comic episodes of things that I've done because um, they're just so much, makes sense, but so much more fun on set. I don't know how you make comedy in, a, in, a, in an uh, arena of tension, but I guess some people do it. Over the course of your career, when you did hit points where you were kind of fielding a certain kind of validation or having your work critiqued, how, how do you go about keeping that, uh, I guess, that spontaneity and that fun vibe about approaching your material and not feeling weighted down by that kind of uh, assessment? I remain completely disconnected from it. I don't listen to it. I don't admit it in my house. Um, <clears throat> you know, my husband was being a producer, was always interested in reviews and numbers and what people are saying online and I eventually had to say just don't 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 tell me that stuff I'm not don't bring it in here because it's um it's immaterial for one thing and uh it's really negative that's very very fair all right taking a step forward now to Hercules and the Amazon women when you first joined the cast of that what were your expectations for your involvement? And I, I guess when you first signed on for that, did you have any idea that it was going to serve as a pilot for a series? Oh, I tell you what, I did the audition. I got the job. Um, they were looking at me for the role of the Amazon queen, Hippolyta, uh, which eventually went to Roma Downey. They just decided I was too young. I think I was 24. So they gave me her lieutenant. I was so nervous the night before 
that I was just pacing and I couldn't settle. I was I was having you know, circular thoughts. I was freaked out because I'd never done a role so big. And my husband at the time, one of the best things he ever said to me was, just lie the fuck down and go to sleep. And I went, oh, oh come. You know, like somebody took the power like out of my hands for a minute because I was just in a terrible state about the responsibility of it all. And it was great. So then over the course of uh, of your run on that and leading up to leading your own show with Xena, do you think that that experience prepared you enough for that? Or did you have one of those sleepless nights before stepping onto the set of a show that you are headlining? No, the other one was much more nerve wracking. It was a three episode arc. I'd never done anything so big. and But um, doing the show just felt like a normal day at the office, actually. Pretty great. And then meeting Renee was interesting, you know, because she was really like the character. She was so, like, <laughs> overawed to meet me, which was ridiculous because I'm just a couple of years older and had done nothing, right? But she was like her character, all bouncy like a puppy. And, um, but she became one of my, my great friends in all the world. Backtracking a little because it is so unusual that we see one actor play multiple roles on not not just a single show, but a, a collection of them. So was it just a shock every single time they came up with a new idea for you? Well, you know, the pool of actors who could do an American accent, I guess, was quite small. And every, you'd always hear acts going, it's Hercules. And we still laughed at this day about Hercules because it so diminishes the um, hero to be called Hercules. <laughs> to an American ear and um no it was it was great it's all good so going off of Xena now you have been a pretty hugely influential queer rights icon for years and years so oh, do, you nice. remember, do you remember what it was like when fans first started embracing that quality of the character and also you coming to the decision that it wasn't just something that you wanted to sit back and watch people uh, embrace, but you wanted to embrace it and support it as actively as you do yourself. Yeah, I do remember the exact moment when it came to our attention, Renee and I, on the side of set, reading this big long scroll, because faxes came out in scrolls in those days, information from the Village Voice writing this article about, it was Michael Musto writing about how Zena and Gabrielle were queer characters and we we're like what the hell we were going that's crazy and we went that's cool um the decision to support um the gay community the fact that they should be judged unequal for um you know writ large is disgraceful and unacceptable good good souls and I'm sick of um I hate that kind of injustice against children people are queer or straight or whatever they are from before the time they're born. So to be adjudicating them as less than from they're getting those messages implicitly or explicitly from such an early age, it's a terrible, it's it's a violence to me. It's violence against children and um, that just goes throughout their lives. So we want to eradicate that, stop being violent to children and telling them that they don't belong. It, it's, it's so upsetting. I love that you do that. And also taking a, a similar approach to uh, your social media as well and the reach that you have there. So 
I guess, what what advice would you give to someone else in the industry, maybe a, a newcomer first gaining that kind of fan base who might be hesitant or scared to use their voice on social media or elsewhere to speak out about the causes yeah. that are important to them? Yeah, it's really important to, well, you have to identify what are your causes and you have to keep it a little bit, your lines a little bit clean. You can't be like going out off about everything because people just stop listening, you know, but so make sure it's weighted where you want it to be weighted. And also it's really important to dissent if you're feeling it, because the more we get this sort of conspiracy of silence, like, oh, be quiet, don't make waves, um, the, the more impoverished democracy is. So having the right to say, this is absolutely unacceptable, I don't tolerate it, is the only bulwark we have against extremism and um, malaise and being, um, what did Noam Chomsky call it, uh, manufactured consent. You know, don't be manufactured. Don't have your consent taken. You have to speak your truth and stand by it. And, you know, you get trolls online. Guess what? A, don't read them. Or B, you have to know how to handle that because it, it only hurts the first two times. And after that, it's like, wah, waka, waka, waka. When they say something wretched, I go, yes, and I invite you to punish me by pressing unfollow. Like, I don't give a shit about your objection to me. But that's me. Well, it might be me now because I feel like I'm going to take what you just said and I'm going to put it in my back pocket for when I have to deal with situations like that. Yeah, it means nothing. You know, you have, for example, in the old days, it'll be something hideous written about you in print could be false could be true something hideous written about you in print but something unkind and guess what it's on the bottom of the woman bungee cage the next day well these days it's online which is you know its own thing but um still folk when you bring yourself into the now and go well i'm in this nice room i have you know nice children or whatever you know focus on what you do have and, and stop making that thing real like you can create a very false reality. You can choose to opt in or opt out. Life's better when you opt out. Very, very true. In opt the in for short times and then opt out for the rest and go back to your real life. Read a book. Sounds like a good plan to me. In the worst transition ever here, going back to your screen work, I know the industry often likes to box folks in when they do something and they do it really well. So what was it like after Xena came to a close? Did you find that you were getting similar roles and was it difficult to break out of that box or maybe did you even want to embrace it? I think I realized quite early on, I don't have any choice but to embrace it because, well, A, she was good to me and um, the character, I mean, Zena, the show gave me everything, I, my family, um, my friends. Um, yes, I, I didn't think I would be boxed in, but I was boxed in in a peculiar way where people think that, oh, she's from that 90s show. It was cheesy. I didn't really watch it. I kind of, it was cheesy. She's cheese. Now, I happen to like cheese. I think it's one of the best <laughs> things on earth. Um, so, yes, I did get boxed in. I kind of didn't realize it at the time. It's only in retrospect. But I seem to have just climbed out. You know, you just just endure. Just endure. Keep walking through new doors keep doing things that scare you um because by golly if you if you live to be 80 um 
you're going to look back on all this and go, wow, none of that mattered. But boy, did I have a good time. So be brave. With that in mind, with all of the projects you've done over the years, is there any particular one that you would say scared you the most? Um, probably Lucretia was pretty damn scary. Xena was scary on that physical level because it was just relentless and I hated the action. I just hate fighting. But again, I didn't have an option to hate it, so I didn't indulge that. But Spartacus was very difficult for, you know, that whole nudity thing is quite... Um, counter to one's nature and to our to our culture and um i was just watching gods of the arena the other night somebody and my husband had it on because we've been through everything else you know on online everything you can stream we've seen and uh so we went back and watched our old show and um my goodness that was a really hardcore very rich storytelling um so that was probably the scariest and the best role this is a very random one, but I was just thinking about this the other day because I was rewatching these movies. I'm very curious how your Spider-Man cameo came to be. Like, who, whose idea was that? Well, Sam Raimi was one of the executive producers on um, Xena and Hercules and is one of Rob's oldest friends. So he just invited me. I was in New York and um, I just rocked up. And, and then I wore that punk outfit home on the plane. And, um, yeah, people aren't that nice to punks. <laughs> They're frightened and they act in a way that's a little bit hostile. Wh whose idea was that particular line? Sam. That's pure Sam. Did you did you shoot anything beyond that just to kind of play around with it? No, that's really it. You made you made your impression with it though, so job well done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, with uh with TV in general. You've also guested on a slew of shows over the years, and there's no way I can cover every single one right now. So is there anyone in particular that made an especially big impression on you that you look back on fondly? Maybe you'd want to return to that character if you had the opportunity. The sort of the big three in my mind would be um, Curb Your Enthusiasm, <laughs> Curb Your Enthusiasm, Simpsons, and of course Parks and Rec. Those were those were the big three for me. Solid, solid choice there. Although yeah. I am a little sad you didn't name drop Ruby from Ash versus Evil Dead. Oh my God, Ruby. That was the worst character ever. It's like, what the hell was she? We're all like, <laughs> when Bruce would go, who is Ruby? We were like, we don't know. They haven't bloody written it yet. So, um, I mean, I had a lot of fun hanging out with those those actors. I love the show. It's just in terms of a role, like I don't know what that was. That's the benefit of doing uh, sci-fi fantasy, though. You could you could swing <laughs> big and make it work. It, it felt right to me. Oh, good! I'm really glad. Just because I'm curious, do you have any idea what was planned for season four? It really did feel like at the end when that was canceled, it was almost like the rug being pulled out from under fans because there was such a good cliffhanger. Uh. I'm um, I'm sure that was the rug being pulled out from under. Um, uh, I, I don't know, actually. I don't know. I don't remember what the truth of that was, but I know Rob would have wanted it to go another year or so. Yeah. I guess there's there's no chance you'll jump into Evil Dead Rise, is there? Um, I, I doubt it. And I've got all my own stuff going on too. But um, no, that'll be one of those um, kids in the woods 
heck of things. I don't know. <laughs> I got a whole lot of faith in that director. I'm feeling very good about that one. Jumping into the spine of night now. I guess I guess the first thing I'm most curious about is what was the pitch like for the movie to you? Were they able to paint a clear enough picture for what they were striving for just by, I guess, explaining it? No, I, I saw um, I saw a rough cut of it. And I just went, this is bonkers. And this reminds me of 1972, you know, movies from that, uh, cartoons from that era. Maybe we didn't have a TV in 1972 we probably did black and white so it would have been a little bit later than that but certainly um the movies that it reminds me of are from late 60s early 70s they're already old by the time I was cognizant of them um what was the pitch like it's like do you want to do you want to do this you know uh, a little bit of flattery was in there which water off a duck's back but um I just thought it was uh cool and bizarre and and kind of ugly beautiful and my lawyer said Lucy do you really want to be seen that way and I went yeah <laughs> because this is sort of a lump of a woman she's a shamaness and she's she walks you know like a caveman she's australopithecus walking and um and she's cool she's awesome she's magic and she's ugly beautiful she is super cool, and she she stands for some very good things. I, qu I quite liked the character. With the physicality in mind, is there anything you could do to tap into that when you're actually doing your voice work, or is that not even necessary? No, that is a big part of it, actually, too, because your voice has to make the sounds of the movement, so you physically have to, um, in some way, uh, replicate that, you know, what you're seeing that's really important for getting the rhythm right um Zena taught me to like I'm a I'm a killer looper my ADR is like because we would have to do so much to so late at night you just get really good at it. I've done thousands of hours of looping and um uh yeah anyway I enjoyed that part of it to create that character but and and also um because Phil was working at this on his own, you're locked into the picture. So the rhythm of the person speaking uh, who initially did it is the rhythm that you have to go by. It's not necessarily what you would have done. Um, they, you know, most animation, they do the voice first and then they animate to picture, but this is the other way around. So um, that also gives it a slightly uh, a mannerism. The whole thing has a, has a um, um, a rhythm that is it, it just it, it's kind of lean and bizarro, and that's why part of the reason why. Do you have a, a preference one way or the other? Because I I imagine both ways of recording, whether it's uh, before or after the animation is complete or semi complete, has its pros and cons. So if you had to choose one way to work on an animated film, what would it be? I think this is really unique. This is because it's you know a couple of filmmakers working for years in their own uh, garage. I say that metaphorically. Um, this is not the way that anybody does it, but I think it makes it really, I don't know, everything old is new again. And there's something lean in about it. It's just kind of bonkers. Nobody would choose to do it this way, but 
I think it's cool that they did. Is there anything about doing it this way that you think is going to serve your future voice work well, like a new skill that you might have picked up that you can bring to whatever you're going to record next? Um, well, everything strengthens you, you know, everything strengthens your, your techniques and, and your, it makes you more flexible. I don't know. I'm proud of it. I think it's really kind of charming in some grotesque way. I can't, I can't exactly explain why I would call it charming, but I think you're spot on with that. Yeah. It definitely has that quality to it. Yeah, it's nutty. So I was um, I was reading Philip's uh, director's statement on this, and I love how he explains why he's uh, drawn to the fantasy genre. So as someone who has had much experience in that genre yourself, I guess, what is it about fantasy that keeps you coming back for more? Oh, no, fantasy chose me. I don't. I, I always look for the um, the mundane. You know, the banality of evil is what makes evil kind of interesting and, and um, quirky. You can embed truth within the fantasy. You can tell. It's like Battlestar Galactica had a lot of uh, socio political commentary to make in a way that is. It's just sort of embedded in the narrative, so people can discuss deeper meanings afterwards. It gives you lots to think about. The, the story they're telling is not the story underneath it all, you know? Absolutely. Another thing that his director's statement got me thinking about, and also I think something that applies to you, having worked on an animated film in a more independent setting like this, and also having done the big studio fair, is there anything about Spine of Night that you think the folks at the studio should should take note of to influence either their process or the content they're producing as far as, I guess, just encouraging studios to take more storytelling risks that we don't see as often that we're getting here. Yeah, because it's it's so unconventional, the way that, well, the story, first of all, the way that they went about it, everything is, I, I love that they're taking a punt on somebody who is outside the box, well outside the box, who is settling satellite. <laughs> um, I love that I, I've got to give them credit for feeling it because um, it, it's very hard to define what makes this project super hooky. You know, it hooks you a little bit, um, but bless them for, for getting on board. That is for I, sure. I love the passion. I love the passion of this guy, right? And the single-mindedness, the, the, the drive that's the... Um, he just, he kept nourishing that creative spirit until he, but he produced um, a finished film. It's unbelievable. The odds against that are infinitesimal. Definitely one of those projects where you can feel the passion for the material and just the animation format in general leaping off the screen. And I, I think that has great value in addition to just the story being told here. And look who came on board, Patton Oswalt. Richard E. Grange and a bunch of other cool people. It's like, that's really wow. I was really delighted to be find myself amongst them. I assume you didn't get the opportunity to work with any of the uh, other voice actors on this, right? You're just, you're solo oh, no. by yourself. No, I'm in New Zealand and we did it between lockdowns and um, I, I'm sure they're also locked down where they are. So it's fun to be able to, to be taken somewhere else, isn't it? That's what we're all enjoying in this 
not a friendly world out there for us at the moment. You know, the news is all bad. To be taken somewhere else into fantasy realms is such a psychic relief. Uh, one of the the greatest things of the past year is all the uh, the television and movies that we've been able to see. Because honestly, I I don't know what I would have done without them. Yes, I agree. I mean, God bless all you people for making such uh, such wonderful wonderful fare for us. It's been incredible, and we're see keep catching up on all the things we didn't get to see, right? And appreciating people's work. Absolutely. That could bring us to the end of Collider Connected. We're going to do some some very random questions. And because of what you just said, I'll go with what is the most recent show that you binge watched? Prior to Gods of the Arena, um, Lupin. And prior to that, Queen's Gambit. Yeah. Ah, Queen's Gambit. Are you, are you a chess player by chance? Uh, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> it didn't spark any interest to, uh, to dig into it more? Uh, a little bit, actually. But did I follow up? No. I think I have the same problem. Um, if you could cast yourself in any other movie that's come out already, what would you choose and which character would you play? Oh, I'd want to, you'd want to be Ripley. You want to be Sigourney Weaver. She's the queen, the high priestess of it all. For I don't me. think we're going to unsee that. Yeah. She's, she's amazing. I'm glad she did it. That was so inspirational. Absolutely. I love that choice. Did you pick up any new hobbies during lockdown? I did go through the sourdough bread phase. Um, I've been through the making cheese phase. I've just got busy thinking about my own projects. You know, I want to make a documentary next. I want to direct a documentary. Um, So I'm delving into that subject matter and, um, and you have to look for funding, but it's about you yeah, keep evolving, keep doing things that that excite you, and and um, don't say I could I should be at the Oscars, I should be at the virtual reality re- Oscars. Like no, just keep moving wherever you are. Is there any particular reason you're drawn to the the documentary format? Is there a particular topic or cause you really want to cover? Uh, there's a particular p- uh, person that I want to cover for um, a New Zealand woman. Um, I want to give that to the world because there's an unconventional person who did some um, really wild things. And, and, and my question is, can you outrun your humanity? So um, uh, anyway, more to come on that. Is there any proper costume you've kept from any of your projects that is especially precious to you? Well, the Xena one would be the most precious, but I did send it off to the Smithsonian because, um, you know, they collect all that kind of stuff. And I thought it would just molder away in my garage and it would have, but I kind of wish I had it back now. I don't blame you. I bet you still have a lot of other cool stuff around too. Oh, my house is so full of swords and things. I used to have one in the trunk of my car for years because there would be practice, you know, you have to practice with your swords. So my kids have grown up with all kinds of weapons just lying around the house and um, not even not even particularly interested in them. They're just, you know, just the household junk to them. What are they thinking? That's the coolest thing ever. I know, no, it's just normal, you know. Well, I have to let you go. You've got lots to do because you've got lots to celebrate with the spine of night. So Lucy, thank you for hanging out with oh us. Oh my gosh, thank you. Congratulations, because again, I can't emphasize this enough for anybody out there who wants to see something that 
There's really not a lot of things out there like, please, whatever you have to do to not forget about The Spine of Night. It's premiering at South By. Keep an eye out for it. Thank you again for your time today. Pleasure is mine.